Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses your stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. The music you hear in this episode was played by the subject of the story we're going to discuss today. But before we get into that, we have some exciting news. This episode of Right Lane is sponsored, sponsored by the Scripps Howard Awards. The Scripps Howard Foundation and Right Lane are collaborating to spotlight some of the best journalism of 2019. Be sure to submit your entries to the awards. For details, go to shawards.org. Finalists will be named February 25th, and winners will be announced March 3rd. The awards show will be April 16th in Cincinnati. In the weeks ahead, we'll remind you about the contest, and we'll also be talking with some of the winners on this podcast. This is a great marriage, we think, because the goal of the foundation mirrors ours to teach and empower journalists. So because of the strict Scripps connection, we want to highlight one of Lane's award-winning stories. She's a two-time winner of Scripps Human Interest Writing Award, and this particular story was part of one of her celebrated portfolios. Today's topic, Calming the Storm. This is actually the first story that ever won a national award, the first one that I did, so this is pretty special. The voices had been bad that morning, angry and insistent, screaming through Justin's head. He sat behind the reception desk at Vincent House, swiveling in the chair, trying to concentrate on the phone he was supposed to be answering. But the phone didn't ring. The quiet was too loud. The voices kept shouting. Justin Shea, 21, had been coming to Vincent House for three months. Of the 50 regular members at the clubhouse for people with mental illnesses, Justin was the youngest and brawniest. In high school, he'd played baseball and football. Which is why, just before lunch on that Wednesday in March, the director of Vincent House asked Justin for help. A woman in St. Petersburg had an old piano she wanted to donate for the clubhouse rummage sale. Could Justin help pick it up? Justin jumped at the chance, anything to distract him from the noise in his head. He followed the director out the door, neither man knowing the power of that piano. Justin has a square jaw and kind eyes. A gold hoop hangs from his left ear, pirate style. Dark sideburns frame his face. His handshake is hard, his voice soft. Even as a child, he said, he was always sort of sad. It didn't make sense. He had a mom, dad, big brother, and three huge chocolate labs who loved him. He had his own room in a nice house in St. Petersburg with a window overlooking a shady lawn. 
He just knew one day he would play professional baseball. The voices started soon after high school, softly at first, then louder and more fierce. Justin's mind began turning against him, telling him he was a terrible person, trying to get him to do awful things. Justin knew he shouldn't hurt himself or eat dog feces or do any of the things his head was telling him to do. So he started yelling back at his brain, pacing his house, raking the air with his arms. His parents had him committed. Doctors initially diagnosed bipolar disorder. For more than a year, a combination of medications helped hush the voices. Justin found a part-time job as a security guard. He felt so good, he, started, he stopped taking his pills. The voices came back meaner and louder. Sometimes he saw pictures, movie scenes playing across his mind. One night, Justin was so scared, he ran from his house wailing, trying to escape himself. His parents called the police, who came armed with tasers. Justin screamed at the cops, shouted at his parents, railed against the noise in his head. He felt the taser sear his flesh, an electronic staple shot through his back. He woke up in the psych ward at St. Anthony's Hospital. Besides being bipolar, doctors told him, he had schizoaffective disorder. A woman in one of Justin's support groups introduced him to Vincent House. There, he met Elliot Steele, the director who founded the nonprofit clubhouse along with his wife, Diane. Justin also met dozens of other people living with mental illnesses and learned how many of them had lost jobs, homes, and hope. He started volunteering at Vincent House, washing dishes, raking gravel in the garden. But even after three months, Justin remained reserved. He'd smile at the other members, but he seldom spoke. On the drive to pick up the piano that day, he sat in the truck's passenger seat, swathed in silence. They hoisted the instrument out of the women's living room, across the yard, onto a flatbed trailer. Then Justin climbed behind the piano to strap it down. It was a Yamaha, real wood, not laminate. Oak, Justin thought, or maybe maple. He could tell someone had loved it. Grandma Tess, the woman who'd owned the piano, played it for endless hours, said her daughter-in-law, Edna Davidson. Edna was donating the piano in honor of Grandma Tess. She hoped the sale would bring Vincent House much-needed money. Justin couldn't figure out why anyone would give such a beautiful instrument to a rummage sale. He stood before the Yamaha, admiring its rich wood, the yellowed ivories. Then he cupped both hands over the keys and closed his eyes. Strains of Beethoven filled the flatbed, spilled into the street. Rapid arpeggios and long, languid scales. The music kept coming. Justin kept his eyes shut. From the sidewalk, Elliot listened amazed. No one at the clubhouse knew Justin could play. He'd never even talked about music. Wonderful, Elliot cried. Justin didn't hear him. He only heard the piano. When he played, he discovered the music muted everything, even the voices. He'd taken lessons years ago back in middle school. His mom had made him. After he got sick, he dabbled a little on a Casio keyboard at home. But it wasn't until that spring day in the truck, standing at the old piano, that Justin realized what the music could do. It was more than just drowning the noise in his head. It was channeling that energy that made him pace and flail his arms, focusing the excess into creating something textural, combined with the physical act of striking the keys. Justin lost himself in the music, physically, mentally, and emotionally. It freed him. He played on for ten minutes, Bach, boogie-woogie, blues scales. The woman donating the piano stood beside Elliot weeping. Don't sell it, she said. Keep it at Vincent House. For him. In some ways, we all feel like outsiders. 
We spend our lives struggling to make connections, searching for dignity, trying to fit into at least one small corner of the world. For Justin and other people with mental illnesses, that need to be accepted is even greater. He'd suffered for years, feeling he would never belong or even be comfortable in his own skin. In the 88 keys of that donated piano, he finally found what he'd been looking for, himself. He started showing up at the clubhouse at 7.30 a.m., an hour and a half before he had to be there, so he'd have plenty of time to play the piano. He played through lunch, entertaining the other clubhouse members while they ate. With his income tax refund, he bought a new Yamaha keyboard with a CD recorder for his room. Every afternoon, after working a custodial shift at an office building, Justin would hurry home to play the keyboard while his mom made dinner. Since March, he's written 42 songs. Four of them have lyrics. Themes range from school gyms to true love. He's even ventured out to perform in public, where he'd often felt so unsafe. Wherever he heard there was a public piano, he played it. While a dozen guys shot hoops at the USF Activity Center gym in St. Petersburg, Justin serenaded them with Chopin. The cleaning man at Grace Lutheran Church stopped vacuuming to hear Justin's hymn. One Sunday, Justin spent two hours entertaining residents at a nursing home. Now, instead of screaming, I sit down at the piano and play to the pictures in my mind, he said. I play mostly so the voices won't come. As the voices get louder, so does his music. On a September Wednesday, six months after he'd gone to pick up the piano, Justin walked into the lobby of Vincent House, clutching a satchel of sheet music. You want to eat? The cook asked him. I'll take it to go, Justin said. Right now, I'm going to play the blues. He rocked as he talked, side to side, back and forth. His hands sliced small circles in the air. He slid onto the wooden piano bench, his back to the crowded dining room. This first one's an original, he called over his shoulder. I hope you all like it. After a few bars of rollicking blues, the clubhouse quieted. Sounds of silverware clicking, ice plunking into plastic cups. Even conversation died away. A gray-haired woman in a cardigan carried her lemonade into the lobby to listen. The cook came out of the kitchen, wiping his hands on his apron. Oh, man, Justin's smoking, he told the woman. I was just back there shaking my booty. Justin sat perfectly still while he played. No swaying, no twitching, his back ramrod straight, eyes shut. Show tunes, love songs, long classical compositions. At 12.20, a staff worker called, Hey guys, time to go to work. Justin kept playing. He turned the page in his songbook. This one, he announced to his audience, is on just the black keys. He knew the music wouldn't cure him. No matter how much he played, he still faced a hard road. He knew what happened to so many people who had mental illnesses, who didn't have family to support them, who didn't have a job or a muse to quiet their mind. Justin knew no matter how loudly he played, the voices would always be with him. But music had become a balm. It had given him a way out of the maze. Mostly, Justin said, he felt like he owned his mind again. Mostly, it was filled with piano music. It's like medicine, he said, when the staff worker finally made him close the piano. It's better than medicine. It shifted the noise in my head. Since he started playing piano, Justin said, the voices have become softer, kinder, like whispered encouragement from his parents and friends, sometimes even from himself. Now, instead of scaring him, the voices cheer him on. You're a good person, they keep saying, and a great piano player. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're talking about a story that Lane did uh, years ago and was um, uh, recognized by the Scripps Howard Ward. And she just read it and she's crying again. <laughs> so this is a thing that happens. You're remembering Justin. Um, so uh, let's talk about how you got this story and when you came into this story. So this was a story that came off of a bad daily assignment that nobody wanted to do. <laughs> they had sent me like maybe a year or two earlier to cover a ribbon cutting at this clubhouse for people with mental illnesses. And it was one of those things like, oh my God, take one for the team. You know, the mayor's coming. Woohoo. So I ended up going to the, uh, <laughs> I ended up going to the, there's a lesson, go to the ribbon cutting. Well, yeah. go early. I yeah. went two hours early because you know, we, Oh my God, you we, get assigned to the ribbon cutting and not only do you go, but you go two hours early. I don't give a hoot nanny about the mayor. You know, oh. I really, sorry mayor, but I didn't. I'd like, I wanted to see, we've talked about this before, but who has something at stake, right? right? I don't care that the mayor's there. The mayor probably doesn't even care that the mayor's there, but this whole group of people <laughs> had this place that they never had before, like a place to hang out. So I went two hours early. They were making cookies. They were putting up ribbons. They were super duper excited that this was happening. I think that story ended with, oh, the mayor's here. Like I didn't quote the mayor or stay for the ribbon company, but I wrote you about really this didn't care about the mayor. <laughs> but I talked for a long time to this guy, Elliot Steele, who had started the clubhouse. His daughter had mental illness. And had disappeared for a while. He found her in a dumpster and, and saved her and oh, started this clubhouse so people like her would have a place to go and get job training and socialization. Um, so I talked to him and I said, hey, you know, if you ever have any good stories come out of Vincent House or the, the good things you guys have done or some of your, I think they call them clients, some of your clients, if there's a good story there, let me know. And which you do all the time. Which I always do. Every, leave my every, card, everyone you meet. Yeah. Leave a stack of cards, you know. And sure enough, this is probably maybe a year later. And he was like, oh, my God, we got this donated piano. This kid's life's been turned around. You need to come meet Justin. So it was probably six months after this had happened that I met Justin. And I went and had lunch at Vincent House um, and watched him play the piano for the residents there or the, the members. Yeah, there. I was going to ask you. So you didn't see you, the the scene where they get the piano is totally recreated. Totally recreated. Elliot and Justin and the other maintenance worker there. I interviewed all three of them. Just tell me how that day unfolded. And then the woman who donated the piano who was there as well. So I actually had four people cooperating what went down that day. And then, um, but you, then you got to see him play. Then I that, stayed at the clubhouse scene. and got to see him play. And then I asked if I could come home with them and meet his parents and see his house and meet his dogs. And so I. I think I spent a day with him total and then mm. some other interviewing, you know, on the phone and stuff like that. The well, stuff with his family didn't make it into the story. What you did, you just decided it was. I wanted to frame it around that day at the clubhouse. I just thought that was kind of the scene where it all happened, you know. Wow. Um, and did, did, so did he cooperate too right away? I mean, was he like into it and. He was wonderful. By the time I met him, he was like. A musician, you know, he, mm -hmm. like he was legit, this was his thing and he wanted to play his songs for me and he wanted to tell me how, how much this had transformed his life. And, you know, a lot of the people at the clubhouse were a lot worse off than he was mentally. And he was very lucid and cognizant and intelligent and, and good to interview and talk to. Um, 
you know, he had no hesitation at all. He wanted to share the story. He felt like Vincent House had really, 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 really helped him through, through this piano. It reminded me a lot of um, Steve Lopez and the soloist. Remember the soloist where the L.A. Times columnist meets this um, homeless man who's playing a, a cello, I think. Is it a cello? Some some mu- musical instrument, and and he's like blown away and by how good he is. And then he figures out that oh my god, the guy had been gone to Juilliard, and then he had a mental breakdown. But um, so yeah, the whole idea of music as a, as an escape, it's transformative power, like a language that doesn't have any words you know so because you took one for the team then it led to the call and then when he called you it was like where where, where was your head going what were you thinking about how you would cast the story what would you do you just kind of go see him play yeah I was thinking oh I wished I was there the day he got the piano mm-hmm. <laughs> I missed that how can I recreate that um yeah it was basically I kind of went over there to see what what it would look like like he said He's his volunteering has gone from washing dishes to being the entertainment, and I was mm-hmm. like, okay, let me see that how that plays out, you know, um, and and really was a, a a pretty quick report, you know. Yeah, um, I want to I want to draw attention to uh, again. This is sort of a lane moment in the story, right? Because um, I love looking for lane moments in this story. So at one section break, you say. In some ways, we all feel like outsiders. We spend our lives struggling to make connections, searching for dignity, trying to fit into at least one small corner of the world. And then you segue into people with mental illness. So I, I and you do this a lot, but you, um, you're very purposeful with those kind of moments in stories where you are trying to, it's almost like you're grabbing the reader and you're saying, like, you know, this is where you connect. This is how, this is where you, you may not have mental illness, but you connect on this level and let me make it. I mean, you're very purposeful about that. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, like, what, I mean, not just with this story, but also the way that you do that. I, I think it's a really, I mean, we talked recently about the baby death story. You did the same thing in that story where you wanted to have the reader understand just how painful this could be and, and how easily it could have been you, <laughs> Right. So I, I, anyway, I just, that, that graph jumps out at me in this story because it's the one place where you're sort of stopping to talk to your readers. Yeah. I think, you know, we talk a lot about the one word theme or the universal theme. Um, but I also want to make that connection exactly like you said. I, I write about a lot of marginalized people. I write about a lot of people, uh, whether it's, you know, an illegal alien coming into this country or, or someone with mental illness or somebody who's committed some egregious crime or been accused of it. I write about people that aren't necessarily sympathetic to most of our readers. So I want to take a moment in the stories to say, here's why you should care or here's why this person is like you. you know? Cut the distance between them. and Exactly. Yeah. Make them stop for a moment and say, well, I'm not just writing about somebody with schizophrenia. I'm writing about a kid who has three Labradors and a mom and dad who love him and really all he really wants is to fit in. And can't we all relate to that piece Mm -hmm. of it? You know, thank God we don't have to deal with voices in our heads, most of us, but I think we can all relate to sort of like, where where do I fit into the world? When do you decide that, that you want to make time for that in a story? Do you, how purposeful is that? You know, how, or are you, are you thinking, well, I'm writing away on this story and here you have, you're following a time frame right you're tall you here's this boy who comes to this house and then he's bored one day and they go pick up at the piano and then he you know and then he starts playing it and wow so you have this time frame and you're going chronologically you know when do you decide that you feel like it maybe needs a little extra something there I think it's usually in 
one of the sections near the end. You know, like I set up the beginning of like what's what's the promise of the piece is is no one knows the power of this piano, right? So that's right. what you're wondering, like what is this piano going to do? And I don't tell you that he's a piano player up to that point, right? Um, then I give you some background about him, some background about the piano, some background about the, the clubhouse. But right before I'm going to tell you what the power of the piano is, I want you to stop and say, okay, here's where I connect. You know, it's weird, and and I we. I don't like to outline. Maria knows this. She often makes me outline or she does outline, a, lo- a loose outline. But sometimes that stuff doesn't come up in the outline. You know, it right. comes up more organically when I'm typing or writing and thinking like, now I need people to pause, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so sometimes it's just more of a feeling. I know it needs to go in there, but it doesn't. And sometimes I move it around, right. you know. I, I find I often start with it higher up than it needs to be. And it's jarring. Uh, I'd rather get the readers in the narrative and the story and then wait a little bit to to draw them in emotionally. I, I really think it's a very effective thing that, that you do, and it's a sort of a signature of Elaine de Gregory's story because you, um, y- again, you, you cut the distance with the audience, you know, and, uh, and, and we do. We're thinking always thematically about the universal because that's, that's the way that people become emotional or react to your stories is if they can see some connection to it. If it feels very foreign and, and like something that they, you know, they just can't relate to, then it's easier for them to disconnect. But, um, and I, and I can definitely see how it happens more organically because, um, it's not like, Oh, this is where you should stop to pause. Um, but I love those moments in your story. I can, you know, and I look forward to them. I look forward to, and I, and I, I think you're very skilled at finding the moment where the story has a sort of a nice pause and it could benefit from that. Like, okay, you know, think about where, where the intersection is with your life. Yeah, and I think if you put it up too high in the story, sometimes it can be off-putting. You know, Mm -hmm. like the readers might get a little bit resentful saying like, oh, no, look, she's trying to make me care. Whereas if it can come in a little bit later, it's like, oh, no, I really do care. You know what I mean? Um, He was not a difficult interview then. I mean, even though he struggles with mental illness, you didn't have such a hard time with him? No, and there were some people. I actually, I think I probably did about six stories at Vincent House over the last 20 years. There were so many great stories there. Ribbon cutting really (laughs) paid off. It paid off in spades. But some of them were a lot harder. Don't poo-poo that (laughs) ribbon cutting, folks. Yes. I mean, a lot of them were a little bit harder to keep their thoughts in order, yeah. you know, or harder for them to, to dig in and express what I needed them to do. But mm-hmm. Justin was great. And just, uh, I was crying when I was reading it because I thought the ending was happy there, right? That he, he's got the voices quelled and he's found something that makes him happy. So 13 years later, he's married. He has a baby. He runs the Aww. Gulfport Casino. He's like, his life is so great now. I see him at festivals in Gulfport, and he hugs me. And it's just like so many great things came out of that. You know what I mean? And who would have known it from one little piano that changed everything? Wow. Wow. We, we're, we definitely have to pick up that whole whatever happened to theme and sort of catch up with some of these stories. Um, okay. If you have a question for Lane or want to suggest a podcast topic, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Don't forget to enter the Scripps Howard Awards. And uh, we're very thankful to them for sponsoring our show for the next uh, 13 weeks. Um, And join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Martha Asensio-Rhein. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.